Just Bloody Post-It Podcast, a show for creatives who are marketing their work online. I'm your host, Helen Perry, and honestly, I'm still learning the art of knowing your message and getting it out there too. And for work, I teach what I've learned so far in courses and workshops. This is the end of Series 6 of Just Bloody Post-It, a lovely show that usually allows me to have conversations with other people who are doing the same as us, founders and makers and experts. It's about finding out how they work and what makes them tick and where our common ground is. Often that we've learned to ignore a lot of the marketing advice out there or at the very least cherry pick the good bits, but always to embrace our mistakes. And when in doubt, to just bloody post it or say it or start it. Just bloody do. Thank you for listening. This has been our most listened to series so far. It's just you and I today. I invited you and my email subscribers to send in questions for an Ask Me Anything You Like About Marketing and Business episode. And I've got some good ones. So we're going to work our way through them. It will take however long it takes. And I've tried to pick out questions that will have the widest resonance for you. To make it a little bit fruitier, I've used ChatGPT to help answer some of the questions. It was an excuse to get better acquainted with the technology for me. Are you using AI for your content creation yet? Don't be afraid to go in. It's just another tool that can help us, I think. But I sense a lot of creatives are ignoring it currently. But I'm not sure that's an option long term. It's a bit like turning back the clock and deciding that the internet won't affect your work. So let's try it. And I hope perhaps we'll find out today how it can be helpful and make our good stuff better. Let's see. The questions we're going to be covering, answering, include ones about memberships, being organised, what happens when a life crisis hits your business, getting PR for your work and what to do about tumbleweed when you're selling online. But my first question is from Megan and it's about marketing for product versus service businesses. Megan says, here goes, thank you so much for making your podcast. You and your guests always have great takeaways. I'm so pleased you think so. Thank you for listening. I'm an artist who only sells paintings. I don't offer classes or any other services at the moment. My question is, what are the key differences when you're marketing a physical product like a painting versus marketing a service? I find that a lot of business advice is service specific. I see bits that say hop onto this course now, doors are closing or here are all the ways that my knowledge and experience can help you. And that approach doesn't seem to work as clearly for products. Thank you ever so much. Okay, here goes. A product's a product, mostly, although I recognise there are differences between a physical product and a service product. But I want to start by getting into the difference between marketing and sales, because those two are being a little bit muddled up in this message from you, Megan. Marketing is like the promotional campaign that showcases your artwork to the world, creating awareness of it, generating interest in it among a certain group of people, your target audience. Marketing is creating an 
eye-catching, gorgeous website that features high-quality images of your paintings, captivating social media posts on Instagram, and engaging blog content that shares sort of stories and inspiration from behind your art. These marketing efforts aim to capture the attention of your best people, create a desire for your work, and nurture relationships with potential buyers over time. Sales tactics, a bit like the ones you described, are the techniques and approaches you use to turn kind of those interested individuals into paying customers. It's the process of like guiding potential buyers towards making a purchase, like when that transaction is going to take place. I asked ChatGPT to describe the difference using a metaphor that an artist would relate to. This is what it said. Marketing is like the art curator carefully curating an enticing exhibition to captivate the attention of art enthusiasts. They meticulously select the paintings, arrange them in a visually appealing manner and craft engaging descriptions to invoke interest and admiration. Their goal is to attract visitors to the gallery, create a buzz and build a strong reputation for your art. Sales, on the other hand are akin to the art dealer who interacts directly with gallery visitors. The art dealer engages potential buyers, highlights the unique features and qualities of each artwork and guides them through the purchase process. They answer questions about price and negotiate if necessary. Their focus is on closing the deal and facilitating the transaction that leads to a painting finding its new owner. Marketing, you see, I thought that was great from ChatGPT, by the way. Marketing builds awareness, creates demand, sparks interests, and then sales comes in to seal the deal by actively engaging with interested buyers and showing them how to purchase the thing and why they need to do it now. So marketing content for a product is probably going to be focused more on visuals for any kind of artist or product business. So really investing in that is important. Fantastic video, fantastic pictures. And then storytelling, which drives me to understand your work and like you, see your day-to-day. Sales is not so very different when you're talking about a product and a service product. You're creating a sense of, or you want to create a sense of, get this now. There's limited availability. If you don't make a decision, you might miss out. And this is how you can get it. Lots of artists I see fail to bridge the gap between marketing and sales. One doesn't really work without the other. I hope that that metaphor helped you understand that. Just by failing to clearly share things like how much their work costs and how you can get it calls to action are those just subtle nudges that inspire action in the hearts of your audience. So craft them with clarity. Shop now, limited edition available. Contact me for inquiries. Words that kind of evoke a bit of urgency and propel your audience to take action, that final step of buying the thing. Does that demystify the process a little bit for you and help you understand how it applies specifically to an artist? I hope so. Next up, memberships. This is a question from Helen, who is a brilliant Canva specialist. Helen says, I enjoy my one-to-ones, but I need and want something else to offer alongside them. So I was considering a membership, but I keep 
talking myself out of it because doesn't everyone have a membership these days? I think it would be good to help small businesses starting out and I'd be able to mix live trainings with pre-recorded material. It wouldn't be a big production with lots of guest experts, no overwhelming people with content and stopping them from getting their shit done. So my question is, is this a good idea? Do you need to have a certain size audience for a membership to work? This is juicy stuff. I've had many conversations with myself about whether a membership, a community that runs and runs, would be a good idea in my business as well. It sounds very appealing. You get to work with people over a long period of time. And I know from the few kind of more ad hoc-y, membership-y type arrangements that I've run over the past few years, that it works really very well to keep working with people, keep that accountability running week in, week out, month in, month out. Whether that's, you know, for your social media, your business growth, or a particular thing that you want to learn to get better at, like golf, you know, memberships can be a great idea for everyone involved. And subscription-based businesses are, you know, growing across all sectors because for the business owner, it is very appealing because they bring in a steady flow of income rather than having to do that sell, sell, sell all the time. They can, though be hard to run. I mean, isn't everything (laughs) that's successful hard to do and to sustain? It's a lot on you as an individual to be available always to a specific group of people. And you have to funnel new members into it all the time while serving the old ones. So what's my advice? When you think about creating anything, I think you need to be able to answer the question, why this? So in this case, why does it need to be a membership? One of my past podcasts with the writer Penny Windsor summed this up really nicely because she was talking about how to pitch a book to a publisher. And she said she needs to really be able to make clear, why does this thing need to be a book rather than a YouTube channel or a a series of magazine articles or blog posts? Why is it a book and nothing else? So if you want to create an ongoing thing, why does it need to be a membership? Is it like the nature of working with a lot of your clients that they're working alone and they'd really benefit from the support? What would you be able to offer to this ongoing group that they couldn't really get in any other form? Then you've got a great membership. I asked ChatGPT the question about audience size. Specifically, what size online audience do you need to run a successful membership? This is what it says. While there's no fixed threshold for audience size, a significant and engaged audience is generally beneficial for a successful membership program. Correct, ChatGPT. If you want, you can run a membership with half a dozen people in it, totally legit, paying several hundred or even thousands of pounds a month to join. It depends what people are used to paying you for what you do. If you have several thousand people in your online audience, that is very achievable. If you have ambitions to run a membership with hundreds, dozens or hundreds or more people in it, that would be very difficult to achieve, I think, without a sizable online audience. This was a good tip from chat, GPT around this question. If you want to know how many people might join your membership, the one that you've got planned, look at the typical conversion rate for other products that you've sold, the percentage of your audience that's bought them. 
That gives you an idea of how many might sign up or how much bigger your audience might need to be to get the numbers that you want. Great. So how many people have bought from you in the past when you've sold whatever you've sold? What percentage of that audience does that represent? That gives you an idea how many people you might be able to get to sign up to a membership. How does that look and feel to you? How much might you be able to charge them? Is it going to be worth your while or is it going to be exhausting? This is some advice straight from me, not the robot. It all comes back to the same thing. Engaged people who feel they know you and they have some experience of working with you are the people who will sign up for a membership. I know plenty of business owners who are running small memberships who don't have huge audiences and it's rewarding for them. Set your expectations for numbers and income and go for it, I think, if you've got a specific offer that needs to be a membership. Also, don't over deliver. Keep your membership offering tight. Less is more. When there's too much on offer, people feel like they can't make use of it all. And that is a big reason why they cancel subscriptions. Thank you for your question, Helen. Next, a question about tumbleweed from Beth. She says, hi, Helen, you seem like just the person to answer this question I've been asking myself. I hope so. I hope so too, Beth. When you begin selling one to many, in this case, Beth means a course or workshop, it often feels like you're selling into the ether other than when someone buys. How do you know if what you're putting out there in terms of content marketing is resonating? How do you know that people might be close to buying? And if not, why not? And so on. It feels like there's zero feedback, unlike when you work one-to-one with people and you often get a chance to ask them, why did you not book? Okay, selling one-to-many courses and workshops or memberships is a game I have found of holding your nerve. Say, for example, you're selling something over the course of a month, which are brackets I wouldn't recommend, that's a long sales period, or even just a few weeks, I'd go short, it can get exhausting. You know, you can be sending out during that time promotional content via email, Instagram, LinkedIn, podcasts, and it feels like no one is listening. The silence can be deafening and seriously unnerving. And believe me, this happens to everyone I've ever spoken to who sells in this way. Why? Because people don't tend to buy without a compelling reason to do so. In this case, the case of sort of a one-to-many type course, it will be that closing deadline, you know, doors shut on Sunday, course starts on Monday. Without that deadline, there's just no compelling reason to buy something today. Like, that's why the sort of pop your course on your website and hope that everybody's going to purchase it while you're asleep and you'll wake up and you've got a thousand pounds more in your bank account has proven to frankly not really work because people think I'll just get it another day. I don't have to get it today. I'll do it next month instead. Here's my advice for getting people across the line based on what has worked for me. You need to create moments of tension or deadlines through your selling period or kind of sit with the 
reality that that moment of tension is going to come right at the end of your sales period and you're going to have to keep faith right to that kind of last weekend or last couple of days. So you can create moments of tension that can, you know, I use them because it settles the nerves. So I might create a wait list of super interested customers who can sign up for information before the product even goes on sale and then I might offer them a slightly discounted price to buy in early doors. Then you can offer an early bird discount to your whole audience. Get 15% off if you buy by this date. And then after those earlier deadlines have passed and you will have, you know, you'll hopefully got some sales through them, then you just have to keep on selling right up until the deadline. Even if it feels like you've got it all wrong, no one's interested and you're an all round useless human, which is how it feels. I've been there. In fact, every time I feel that. Chances are people are very much watching, thinking about what you're talking about and what you're offering. Then they're forgetting about it and getting on with their day. And then they're thinking about it again when you pop up with some more content. You might know when a piece of content really hits the spot because it results in some more conversations, a few emails, DMs. I often invite people, specifically will say to them, please email me if you'd like to know more about whether this is right for you. And that can generate a bit more conversation. And conversation is obviously great for getting people to understand whether or not something is right for you. Um, I asked ChatGPT, can you tell me how to drive more sales of my online course? And then because the answer was a little bit vague, I said, okay, how would you turn that advice into social media posts? You've got to keep asking this machine questions before you get to the really good answers. It suggests social media posts that talk about value. So that means not would you like to learn SEO with me? It's, do you want more visitors to your website and sales? You're speaking to the value, the results that the people really want. Testimonials. I mean, that's a bit of a no-brainer, ChatGPT, but I will add my little two pence worth. It really, really works to share testimonials towards the very end of your sales period when people are in that final moment of, is this right for me? I find it's extremely effective to show people, you know, pictures and videos of someone who is just like them, who's benefited from working with you. Uh, Limited time offers, which is what we've just been talking about, and questions. Ask questions in your social posts about people's biggest issues, the things they find most challenging and difficult about that thing you sell, and make social media content out of that. That is a good tip. Good luck, Beth. You're brilliant and I loved your question. Thank you very much. Okay, right, let's do a quick fire round. Claire C emailed and said she'd like to ask about all the things, but first and foremost wants to know tips about how to protect time for writing. Right, this is up to you. Put it in your diary. Don't accept meetings. Don't push it into another weird time of the week like a Sunday morning. That's unsustainable nonsense and you know it. You have to be in control of this stuff. Put aside time at a good time of day when your brain is at its best to get your writing done. Your writing can transform the fortunes of your business. It is worth investing time in. 
Also, I recommend joining an online accountability group like London Writers Salon. Go and look them up. Claire's next question is about Instagram. She says, how do I attract the right followers? Do I use hashtags? Is it all about commenting or ruthlessly unfollowing people and businesses who have little to do with yours? Yes, you can do all those things. But I would say that you are slightly missing the point here, Claire. The way to attract the right people to your content is to be your most open, true version of yourself and your business in your content. Always share words that ring true with you. Use your own voice. Find your own voice. It takes time. I understand that. Share opinions and thoughts that you stand by that are your own. Visuals that you like, not just ones that are on trend. They're saying your vibe attracts your tribe is a bit cringy, but I think it's really true. It takes time to be yourself online or to be as much of yourself as you're prepared to be as far as it relates to your business. But that is the way to find the right followers. Also, Claire asked, how consistently do you really need to post? I don't know whether you mean just on Instagram or across all kinds of platforms, but I would say that sharing should be part of your week. If you want big growth, then put in big amounts of time. If gentle growth is okay for you, take it gently, but make it part of your week. Is that guidance enough? Okay, next, Laurie, who is a LinkedIn trainer, says, I have a business and an audience supporting employed women, but I have ideas for some products that would help business owners too. Am I going to confuse people if I start talking about this other thing? Or are they smart enough to choose what works for them from a menu of options? Do I risk diluting my core audience if I start talking about this other stuff? I think that you are dead right when you say that your audience is smart enough to understand an offering that is the same but a bit different. If you're making changes to what you're offering, talk about that. Take your people on that journey with you. They'll come. Communication is the key. And people who are employed, you know, they may have aspirations to be their own boss. They may know people who are their own bosses who you can help and they will tell those people about you. So go for it. Just bloody start. Another quick question from Katia. How do you keep on top of admin and finances running your business? Um, Not perfectly would be the honest answer, but otherwise, okay. Although I don't employ anyone in my business, I do pay for help, regular ongoing help with certain tasks, which, you know, I would swear by as a time-saving approach to running a business. I get help with my design website and emails thanks to Ian and Luke at Feel Good Creative. You guys rock. My husband, Matt, conveniently is an accountant. So he's kind of obliged through marriage to help me. But you know, there's there's not a great deal in the day-to-day of running my finances. I have a bank account with Tide that is linked to zero accounting software and they talk to each other and it's pretty much job done apart from around the time that I need to do a tax return. I have a couple of good practice systems in place that I've learned from Matt over the years actually. My work emails are only on my laptop and I try to deal with them in chunks daily and if you have billing to do, fucking prioritise it. Have a weekly billing time slot or something like that so you're on top of people who owe you money always. That is important. Okay, some longer answers again. 
Bex wants to talk about navigating the summer, which here in the UK is almost upon us. And by summer, we mean the school summer holidays. Bex is an interior designer. And here's her question. As an interior designer working with families, my client work naturally slows a little over the summer. And previously, I've taken the summer off. But this year, I need to navigate a summer of working some hours and giving my three offspring some attention. Helen, you've done it. What are your tips? As I bang on about home as a feeling in my work, I'm quite keen to avoid our home becoming a battleground of boredom, juggling and frustration and possibly tears. I also know that if I keep working over the summer a bit, it'll alleviate that back to school, but no mojo feeling. In September, please help Bex. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. All the pressure to be all the things for all of the people. This is a 100% human answer from one person to another. We don't need a robot to tell us how to do this. I think firstly, we've all got to try and let go of any ideas around creating a perfect summer whilst also moving our business forward. I think, you know, the kids need to rest and switch off. You need to rest They can be bored. They can be on devices quite a lot at times. And often that organising those magical days out is exactly where all the stress lives, in my experience. My plans are as follows. This is not advice so much as, you know, I've done this a few times now. uh, So have experience to share. If and when you're on holiday away with them or on a day out or whatever, you're off work. That is time off. It is annual leave. When you're at home, it becomes a little bit more blurry. Have a look at the week and chunk out working time. Whether that's every morning, which is really feasible for me now because I've got teenagers and they're asleep in the morning or, you know, two whole days in a week and that's working time. This is 100% no guilt working time. They need to understand that. If you're able to take yourself away to do the work or at very least shut a door between yourself and your children, do that. September can be such a surprisingly slow ramp up by the time you've like got the kids back to school you know, got some jobs done that have, you know, been put to one side during the summer holidays. It's the end of September before you feel like you're at work again. I really know what you mean about that. So this mid to late August is when I'm going to start my September work, if that makes any sense. My advice to younger listeners, hi, is learn from me. You and your partner need to spend an equal amount of time considering the impact of school holidays and the break of routine on your work. Who's taking time off when? Who's coming up with ideas for things to do? Both of you. But do you know, this is a really hard one. I have not got it all figured out. The odds are stacked against us in many ways. Good luck, Bex. Good luck, all of us. Right, next, an anonymous techie question that I was interested to answer because this happens to me from time to time. Why are my emails suddenly going into junk folders. I'm getting lots of messages to say people can't find them and it's so frustrating. My open rate's around 40% usually and they take me bloody ages to write. Okay, this is really frustrating. I don't know, first of all, which email service provider marketing platform you're using. It is possible that something has changed 
And that could mean that your emails are more likely to end up in junk folders at the moment. All the email marketing platforms have customer services. So go ahead and ask them, have I missed something here? Has there been an update? Help me out. I've also noticed on my own emails that they're very quick to start ending up in junk folders if I don't open a few emails from any given sender. So getting your emails consistently opened is the best advice I can offer. This is where you should be focusing. How do you do that? Make them consistently great and spend time creating good subject lines that will catch people's attention and get your emails engaged with. Tip. Subject lines and hooks are a great way to start using ChatGPT. You can type in something like, I'm writing an email about how to grow your audience on LinkedIn. Can you suggest 10 subject lines for my emails? Then, ChatGPT, can you make them shorter, please? And then, which one of these is most likely to get opened? And then you can ask, how about... Subject lines for people who are skeptical about LinkedIn. And then after I put all of these questions through the tech, I got suggestions like LinkedIn, more than just a CV platform and the surprising hidden benefits of LinkedIn, which are both really nice subject lines, I think. It's good stuff. Focus on getting your emails as engaged with as possible. That means opened, clicked on, replied to. This is what will keep them out of junk folders. Okay. The next message is about a big life challenge. And I thought about not answering it honestly, because it felt, uh, feels a little outside of my area of expertise, but it's so personal that I felt a lack of response wasn't right either. It was brave to send it in. So just some thoughts is what I'm sharing here. And again, more proof that the robots won't replace us. This is a 100% human to human answer. So, hi, Helen, the message says. A family member's been admitted to hospital. The sender doesn't know how long for. And it's come at the same time as a big piece of work has landed and she's got coaching clients as well to show up for. She says, what do I do? What do others do? How do I manage this current crunch and restructure my business for the possible months of treatment and hospital time ahead? Sorry for the giant blob of yuck. I'm probably not the only solopreneur dealing with this type of morass. And I am sure you're not. Thank you for your question. So I would face the work crunch head on. And it is a crunch. I don't think you can keep going doing both things as well as you have been looking after your family and taking care of your business. Try and have a look at what you can realistically deliver. Make a list of priorities. What is going to come first at the moment, next week and the week after? Perhaps just one thing at a time. I would consider engaging a business coach at the moment for maybe just one or two sessions to work through how you're going to approach this change of circumstance. I'm not a business coach, but if I needed to keep going in the face of a huge curveball, which I think that you do, I would seek some support to make it feel manageable and not overwhelming and not like I'm on my own. Communication's most likely going to be one of the most powerful tools you've got in your kit for dealing with this. Communicating with clients about how things have shifted, managing their expectations around deadlines 
and when things might realistically be delivered to them. Once people know what's going on, they're usually really calm about it. Communicating with friends and family members about how they can help you by giving you time, probably. People will be kind and understanding, I'm sure, if they know what is going on. I know people at the moment who are managing to balance work and hospital treatment for themselves or family members. And the phrase they'll use a few weeks or months down the line is, this has become the new normal for us now. And I hope that's a place that you get to, a new normal. Good luck, much love. And I know people listening will be thinking the same thing. And this will be resonating with others as well. Thank you for your message. Right then, PR with Becky and Sarah. This is their message. We put a lot of time into our email marketing. As we know, this is a good investment. I've taught you well, Becky and Sarah. It certainly is. Possibly we put too much time into Instagram. Recently, you mentioned PR. This is something we've done very little of, bar a couple of articles and mentions in local papers or magazines. What do you suggest for time poor small business owners to get maximum payback? Would it be worth sending some of our newsletter content to local or national press? Any ideas would be very welcome as we have no idea where to start. We're printmakers who create simple seasonal folk art lino prints for people who want to connect to nature and the seasons. Thank you. Lovely question. Friends, getting good PR, and good PR is a really good idea, I mean, being featured in papers or podcasts or online magazines is not as easy as sending some of our newsletter content to a local paper. Nothing worth having is ever that easy. Pitching yourself or your product requires research first. Which publications are likely to feature what you do or sell? Is it, in this case, interiors magazines or a local lifestyle publication or a local nature podcast that you could appear on? What kind of features do they tend to run? And do your pieces fit into that? How do they fit into that? Could it be Christmas gift ranges or local business features? Suggest yourself for something that they already offer. Find the names of journalists or editors who make the decisions about what gets featured and suggest your product or service or story directly to them as something their readers will love or listeners or viewers will love and be interested in. And then perhaps get ChatGPT to craft a press release for you. This was a good one to put into the robot, by the way. Um, you can either use chat to generate something from scratch. And if you've never sent something like a PR press release or a PR email before, really, really helpful because it will show you how to uh, format it, how to structure it, what kind of information you might want to share, what would be useful to a journalist or a producer. It suggested that you uh, share a press release, something along the lines of experience the magic of the seasons with handmade lino prints by Becky and Sarah. That's, I would say, a little bit generic and general. I would try and find a story around your work. Local lino print artists create buzz by 
building a beehive. I don't know what it is. Can you create a fun story about your work that would make it an easier sell, a more attractive sell to somebody who's editing a publication or of some kind? Can you link it to something that is timely, sustainability, something that's been in the news recently. My friend Belinda sells a um, hot water bottle carrier called the Cozy Majig, and which links up really nicely to the cost of living crisis because people can carry their warmth on their body without switching it on at the wall. Or the trend for wild swimmers who use them after they get out of the water. There's if you can make it seem relevant of the moment and compelling and most importantly, interesting to the people that they want to attract, you're far more likely to get featured. Give the impression you've thought about the approach. If you send something like a little bit of copy over or, hi, this is me, would you like to feature me? Then you're asking them to do the work for you and don't do that. Make yourself attractive. Make it an easy thing for them to opt into. Featuring you should be easy. Go and get the great PR. It has been on my to-do list for like two years to get some more PR for my work. It's a really nice compliment to everything that you're doing on social media. Getting featured is great. It adds legitimacy to what you offer and gravitas and it reaches a bunch of new people. Do it. Right. That's it for the questions this time. Thank you for the others that I got. I've barely been able to speak for this long let alone answer any more. But we will do this again. It's super interesting for me to see inside your heads and businesses by asking about what's vexing you at the moment. And it was interesting to interact with chat GPT on it. It gave me a much better sense of how I might be able to use it to improve my creative content. It kind of offers you different angles on things structures, better ways of doing the same thing or a different way of doing the same thing because all of us doing marketing are trying to find different ways of saying the same thing over and over and over again without becoming bored of ourselves. I speak to creatives who fear it's going to take the human out of what they do, but I don't think that is true. I think you can use your good brain to research cleverly how to come up with fresh ideas, better ideas, better writing. I'm going to run a one-off masterclass next week. Sorry if you're listening later. Thursday, the 22nd of June at 12 noon UK time called How to Use Chat GPT to Make Your Creative Content Better. The link to sign up is in the show notes. And yes, of course, there will be a recording if that time doesn't work perfectly for you. This is just going to be a chance to have a look at how this thing works and how you might use it in a variety of ways to help you with your content marketing in a way that doesn't take the human out of your business. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all of your questions. Thank you always for listening. We're on a mini break now, but it won't be long until you hear from the Just Bloody Post-It podcast again. It's going to be back with some summer picnic snack type content until series seven starts in the autumn. Suze, the producer, you are a legend. Thank you for all that you do always. Goodbye for now. <laughs>